I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Everyone, we are back with another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. My name is Abby Kinney, regular co-host, and today I am joined once again by Mr. Chuck Marone, author and founder of Strong Towns. So it's been a while since we've talked, Chuck. I hope you had a very relaxing holiday break, and you had a nice official end to 2020 and we are officially in a new year. It is the yeah. eighth today <laughs> and uh, first week has been just as crazy as the entire year of 2020, I think. <laughs> yeah, we're off to a rousing start. So happy new year. I I finished my uh, my book and got it into the publisher. So oh, th- there will be, a, yeah, there'll be a, you know, an announcement and a publishing date and all that coming up soon. So yeah, very cool. Excellent. I'm looking forward to reading that. And that will be released in the fall. Yeah. I mean, tentatively, we're looking at September 1st right now, but you know, it, it takes them like four or five months to turn it around. So, you know, it could be earlier. I, th- I think we're going to wait and see how, you know, we want to do a book tour. We want to do it right. We want to, you know, get it out there in a way where it's going to reach the most people. And so that might mean later rather than earlier, you know, kind of like you see with movies they're holding now. <laughs> so, you know, because right. people can't go to the movies or they can't do promos or whatever. We want to be able to do things to get this message in front of people. So that may mean delaying things a little bit, but we'll see. Yeah. Not well, too long. hopefully you'll have an opportunity to get over to Kansas City. Oh, no doubt. For sure. Yeah, Absolutely. The article that we are going to be discussing today was written by Laura Bliss at Bloomberg City Lab, and it is entitled Slow Streets, Disrupted City Planning, What Comes Next? So many people have seen and read the articles that came out towards the beginning of the coronavirus and throughout the entirety of last year covering how cities had been swiftly rolling out slow streets measures by using tactical approaches that restrict car access or speed in many neighborhoods. And the goal of these projects was to encourage socially distant walking, biking, and play on local neighborhood streets. However, the article brings up this criticism of these really well-intentioned actions, I think, saying that the implementation of slow streets without dialogue and consent and co-ownership has led to resentment in some circles and predominantly in long disenfranchised communities. So some criticisms have even compared the open streets movement with racist urban planning practices of earlier decades. And there's this quote in here that I think sums up some sums of the conflict that planners are kind of faced with really well by Corrine Kisner, who is the, the executive director of the National Association of City Transportation Officials. She says the urgency to move fast is in conflict with the speed of trust and the pace that actually allows for input from everyone who's affected by these decisions. So I, th- I thought that was just a really 
good quote that summed up this criticism that's brought on by this article. And personally, I'm a little bit torn on the criticism because on one hand, I can absolutely understand how slow streets might not be a very high priority in some communities. And I think that we ought to be giving citizens the autonomy to determine what priorities they want to implement. And on the other hand, slow streets represents this pushback uh, on the institutionalized really power that has made public spaces a utility for so long rather than uh, places that people can actually socialize in and use. And so it sort of feels like we're eating our own here. So I'm curious what your initial reaction was uh, when reading this critique, Chuck. I keyed in on that same exact paragraph, that same exact quote, because to me that that was the summary. That That is, I think there's two issues here. I think it's important not to confuse them because the the one is a question of how should streets and public spaces be utilized? And the other one is a question of what the process that we should go about getting there is. I didn't really get a sense from this article that there's an overarching critique that you know streets are for cars and how dare you come in and do this. The critique is more about you know, the process that's used. How do we determine where these things are done, at the pace they're done, you know, what streets this this happens to. As I read this through, I couldn't help but think of Jane Jacobs' term, the sidewalk ballet. The sidewalk ballet is this very poetic description of the way sidewalks are used and the way that they are built and developed and the, the interaction between the sidewalk and the private realm you know, the way people people use these. And I key in on this term because oftentimes when planners think of sidewalk ballet, they focus on the sidewalk part. And they're like, what our cities need are sidewalks. Jane Jacobs said it. They need the sidewalk ballet. And they they will capitalize and bold and underline sidewalk like five times, like sidewalk, sidewalk, sidewalk. We just got to build sidewalks. And they lose the ballet part. And the ballet part is this nuanced, sophisticated. You think of two people dancing ballet together. There's, there's a coordination back and forth, right? Ballet is a, is a more subtle dance form. I mean, there's, there's powerful forms of ballet, but it's generally not a kind of dominant form of dance. It's more of a, it's a ballet. It's, a, it's more of a back and forth kind of graceful form of, of working together. And I think as planners, I have been guilty of this in a different career. Part of getting here to this point was recognizing my own bad habits and in good intentions meeting with bad you know, implementation. I think as planners, we're trained to believe that we know the answer, that we know what should happen. We, we see this. We are trained to see what should happen. And so we see sidewalk and we bold it and we underline it and we like, this is what needs to go. And as soon as we get the opportunity, we go out and build sidewalk, 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 sidewalks. And the key to the whole thing is the ballet. It's the dance between the two. It's the, it's the back and forth. It's the humility. That to me is what is lacking in general in planning. And I think in this specific moment where there should be a triumph of bottom-up rethinking and re-innovation, we see this legitimate pushback from people who are saying, no, this is the same mindset that went into urban renewal. This is the same mindset that went into highways through neighborhoods. Sure, you may be doing something nicer. You may be doing sidewalk, 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 but my gosh, you, you have the same mentalities. Cut it out. 
that is exactly what I was thinking about. And I think it is actually a quote that came from you where, uh, you know, we're often implementing Jane Jacobs ideas using Robert Moses's tactics. Right. And I think, yeah, it's like, I think in the planning world, we all like to think of ourselves as that we're Jane Jacobs. We're not Robert Moses. And, you know, people who are interested in better urban environments are often kind of characterizing themselves and, and, probably, you know, validly as this natural opposing force to the conventional way of doing things. And really it's that it's that zeitgeist of the past 75 years that has essentially been been upholding this suburban or auto-oriented development industrial complex or whatever you want to call it. And that complex has built so many places that just have public spaces that are not intended for people walking or using any other mode of transportation beyond using a personal vehicle to get from point A to point B. And that's very frustrating that we've built our places that way. But we are in this transitional period, I think, in the urbanist landscape where a lot of these front row urbanist ideas like safe streets, for example, or open streets are becoming increasingly popular and I think more implementable. And the article does this really good job at describing how one-size-fits-all approaches with little community input or even discussion can severely miss the mark and it can breed resentment. And one example that they bring up in the article is a place, uh, a neighborhood where citizens later expressed that they would have rather used resources to improve a dangerous street crossing that would have provided safer access to a nearby grocery store, but nobody really asked them and instead they got slow streets. And so, you know, it's, it's important to understand that communities have this hierarchy of needs and to some people, a slow streets program clearly feels like their more pressing needs are being ignored to more popular movements. Right. I think about the highway era and, you know, the idea that highways were, you know, the same way that open streets are today and slow streets are today and all this. Highways became like the tool that planners looked at as the way to create the, the utopia they thought that their policies could create. We look at that now and we're like ridiculous, you know, like, why do we do this? But at the time, the idea was, you know, we would stay out of another Great Depression after the war. We would create this strong middle class. We would create this broad prosperity if we just did highways. I don't think that that is wrong. I don't think like saying that highways were part of the answer after World War II is an incorrect statement. We benefited massively from highways. I mean, highways, uh, the interstate system is a great system. I think what happened was that the places we chose to build them and how we chose to build them was, in a sense, imposed all at once from the top down by this vision. Even that could have been overcome. I, I, there were a lot of problems with that, and that's not how I would have gone about implementing it. And I think that that is a, a bad way to do things de facto. But I think we could have overcome that even if there had been feedback loops in place to where when things started to go bad or things started to be uh, objected to or we weren't getting necessarily re the results we thought we would get, there was some mechanism to back off or slow down or rethink things or, 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 or iterate in a different way. People get frustrated with strong towns sometimes because we insist on this incremental approach. We insist on 
a bottom-up approach that seems slower. It, it it goes against the Rahm Emanuel, you know, Obama's first chief of staff, his his whole you know concept. This is the first time I heard anyone say this: is you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. We have a crisis. That means it's time to go in and impose our vision and our will, you know, just de facto on the population. Like, don't don't let a crisis go to waste. Now is the time where you can get the energy to impose your will. Even if we think we're doing right, you know, even if we think we're not doing the interstates and we're not doing, you know, the one I think of in my lifetime is the the TSA and the whole, you know, Homeland Security. I mean, that was, don't let a, you know, crisis go to waste. We can create this whole new bureaucracy and this multi-trillion dollar, uh, you know, thing. I think we look back on these things and lament them, and rightfully so. The thing we lament often is the the outcome. What we should lament is the process. We could have built interstates and had them work really well and have them not be the destructive force they were if we had started with where people are and how do we address their struggles and how do we use this tool to make people's lives better and, and how do we not ignore them and, and run them over. I think we could do the same thing with slow streets and open streets and, and some of these new you know, if we want to call them progressive-minded or, or or just modern, you know, techniques for repairing cities, but we will never do them by using a crisis to impose them wide scale on people. You have to start where people are, and you have to start where people struggle, and you have to address those struggles and, and work iteratively to the uh, to the larger solution. It it doesn't it really doesn't work the other way. Yeah, I think that is something that as a society, we have a lot of struggle with the idea of doing things in a bottom up way. I think that it sounds good in a lot of ways and people kind of get on board with the sentiment of that. But it's hard to then recognize that that means that that you have to admit that maybe you, you don't have all the answers or, you, you know, your your utopian vision of what needs to be done may not be completely right. And that we as a society need to be open to an iterative approach that actually is collaborative. And that's really what I kind of see iterative approaches as. And 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 that's why I am such a big fan of like the tactical urbanism movement, because I think kind of the tactical and incremental nature of these types of approaches to improving public spaces are often the correct way of trying new things without dis- like severely disrupting our places, but we can see what those actual improvements might might look like over time, and it's informed by a feedback loop in this really hyper localized way. And in some ways, it is really disruptive to this conventional bureaucratic way of doing traffic engineering, and in the case of how we design streets, but. It's a tactical approach to just how we use spaces that we all own in common. And that's one of the great virtues of this tactical urbanism movement and this approach to doing things is that it is conservative in action, meaning that it doesn't assume that the right answer is going to be known up front, but it rather promotes this temporary approach or different pilot projects as a way of building consensus and learning what works. And I think that that also means that we need to have more autonomy at the local level and at the even neighborhood level to be able to implement these kinds of approaches. And and that means that that neighborhoods need to be involved and that basically local governments need to 
put their money where their mouth is and also um, be open to what kinds of approaches uh, people come up with because it may it, it may not be included in the federal highway traffic manual. Right. Let, let me be a little critical of the uh, of the pushback in this piece though because I do think sometimes that the solution or the remedy to a quick reaction is to say, whoa, slow down, let's have more you know, public feedback, let's have more uh, deliberation, more collaboration, more conversation, aka let's have more meetings. And I, I do think that there is a case to be made that you know, in some instances we need more meetings. I don't think that that should be our default response though. I, I don't think that should be how we interpret this. I think we should interpret it exactly the way that you just stated. The incremental approach, the iterative approach allows us the feedback. We go out and we do something with a tactical urbanism approach. We get to witness and watch how people respond to that. And we can do that in an environment where if it doesn't work out quite right, nothing's permanent. We can like change it. We can adapt. We can, we can fix it. We can pull it back. We can add a little bit more. And so what this approach does is it gives you information as you go so that the people in the community are, and I'm going to quote Jane Jacobs again, co-creating the space with you. And they're doing it in the most authentic way possible, which is not by filling out a survey or theoretically telling you what they would like to have happen. They're actually giving you feedback by how they use it, by how they respond, you know? Like, I'm not going to use this because it's scary, or I'm going to use this because this really fixed a problem that I had. In my authoritarian Abbey world, I see it as like, you could just give neighborhoods money and that's where the, like a design shred could come in where you could have people actually, which is a fancy way of saying workshop, you could have people work on a problem together and they have money and they know that they, you know, they are being given the autonomy to work through issues to change their spaces. Right. Right. Let me give one last thought here. And I think this is important and it, it really gets to the way we set up our, our Republic and our, our governing systems. Recently, we've been having these conversations just nationwide about obviously our government. We're, we're, we're struggling in many ways. Things are breaking down. And I hear people a lot of times suggesting what I would basically summarize as we need to fix the people. Our people are broken and we need a better class of human being. And I, I get that because we all think we're part of that better group of human beings, right? Like the people storming the Capitol this week legitimately felt that they were the better human beings even though for us, for, for many of us, myself included, that, that seems absolutely heretical and absurd. Very few of us go through life believing we are like lesser humans than everybody else. And so when our prescription is like, you need better humans, I feel like we're denying something. We're, we're forgetting something. We're, we're missing what it actually means to be human. And, and I can reference my Catholicism a little bit here without getting too religious, you know, I, I, part of being human is being broken. Part of being human is being flawed. Part of being human is is having shortcomings that you have to work to overcome. I think it's very natural, and I think we need to understand that as humans, diet and exercise is hard. Getting a pill to you know fix your physique or, or whatever is wrong with you is a lot easier in comparison. But we all also intellectually understand that 
we need diet and exercise. You know, we need systems that in a sense, strengthen us and require feedback and require persistent work and require incremental tending to and incremental improvement. When we set up our governing systems to where they can function more like a pill, a miracle drug, than like diet and exercise, we are basically setting up our places to fail. And 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 I th- I think, you know, what I read in this article is planners seeing a problem, having the miracle drug and going out and administering it. I think that if planners saw the problem, which I, I think they're very good at, I like I I agree with their diagnosis of the problem. But instead of running out to administer the miracle drug, they actually had systems set up and bureaucracies and, and governance systems set up to where the only response that we had available to us was not a miracle drug, but it was actually diet and exercise. You know, the city equivalent, which I think is the tactical urbanism approach, is the iterative approach, is the incremental building from the bottom up approach. Yeah, it's harder. It's less immediately gratifying. But ultimately, over time, I think it is dealing honestly with the human element. And it is dealing honestly with the way we make real, sustainable, viable, long-term change. I think we have to always be leery of people who their default remedy is fix the humans. You know, if we just had better people running these things or better people living in this system, it would all be better. And I'm like, just, that to me is like a, not a serious response. Yeah, I think that that is such a good analogy and it, it hits the nail on the head because we, I think, are just craving a one, just, just one big solution to solve all our problems. And I agree that that is not, that's not realistic and just simply saying that, you know, the people are bad or, or, you know, making broad statements is not going to solve any of these issues. And it is this diet and exercise approach that we need to get used to, to having. And that's, that's difficult to do. And, and I, I think that we also need to kind of understand that like utopia is not, <laughs> I don't really believe in, in the idea that we can have utopia. I think, I think that, um, you know, it's it, a rainforest is beautiful and it's also brutal and as a society and that's okay. And, you know, we should, we should be motivated to kind of lean in to the brutality and the, the incremental difficulty of the way society operates. And when we try to not do that, I think that's where we start to get tension. Right, right. I know what you mean by lean into brutality. Let me say it in drawing on the Jewish tradition. We're never going to reach utopia. Like it's never going to be perfect. But what we have to do is we have to go on that journey and we have to take that journey and we have to find like our joy and our our peace and our our value in that process and that journey of of trying to get there, of working to get there and of, of making it better. And at the end of a life, we should be able to look back and see where we started and where we ended and see that, you know, while we didn't get to utopia, we didn't get to the end point, we didn't get to, the, you know, the promised land, we got closer. And we're grateful for the people who came before us for getting us 
to this point. And then we did our part, you know, we got us to the next point. And I, I think that to me is what it means to live a good life. And that's what it means to, to build a strong town. And, and that's, that's what it means ultimately to, uh, you know, to have these aspirations that there is no shortcut. And I, I think that's the thing that an idea that denies what it means to be human is, is seeking is a shortcut and it's not there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's a really beautiful way of putting it. So I don't want to make you too late today. So yeah, I, got, we, I, got a, I got a dancer to, to transport. <laughs> I know. I know. They're going to be wondering where you are. Where's dad? So we are very quickly going to be doing the down zone today, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been up to this week, anything that's been capturing our attention. And, you know, it's been almost a month, I think, since we last recorded, Chuck. So I'm very interested in learning what you've been up to these days. I've got two quick things. I do fiction book all, all December while I'm baking. So I had like an enormous amount of uh, fiction I went through last month, like five or six books. Two really quick things. First, tonight I'm going to watch the last episode of Queen's Gambit. Awesome. Which I, I have thoroughly enjoyed. It's been very, very good. She's a fascinating character. And uh, yeah, it's been really good. I'm anxious to finish it. There's also a podcast called The Bible in a Year. And I just putting this out there for people who might be interested in it. There's a priest, Father Mike Schmitz. He's actually a guy who graduated from Brainerd High School the year after me. So I knew him. I hung out with his brother. He went on to become a priest, and he now has what is the number one podcast in the country on iTunes called The Bible in a Year. And it's every day a 20-minute podcast that goes through you know one part of the Bible, reading it, and then uh, kind of giving a little talk about it. It's about 20 minutes a day and I've been doing it, you know, since the beginning of the year and it's, it's fantastic. It's really very, very good. And if that interests you, I would welcome people to, to join on that. There's literally millions of people doing it now. Wow. I have not heard about that before, but I might check it out. My family would be very happy to hear that I'm listening to that podcast. <laughs> So I've been spending a lot of time at my climbing gym. I don't know who listens to this podcast who also climbs, but it is the perfect sport for understanding the concept of like incrementalism. And when you made that exercise analogy, I was thinking just of that because it's it's one of those things where you get a tiny bit better and a tiny bit less afraid of heights every time you go. <laughs> and there's no ropes at this gym either. So I get a lot of anxiety personally about falling off the wall. And when you made that analogy, I was thinking about this, this idea and maybe I've just gone crazy, but I have been considering going skydiving this summer to help me get over my fear of heights so that I'm not as afraid when I am climbing. And my rationale was that, well, if I, if I do that, maybe that'll be like a big step and I'll have less fear of falling 15 feet off a wall onto a gym mat. I don't know. I think I might be too chicken to do it, but it is funny that my, my idea has been, well, maybe I'll find this shortcut and I'll, I'll do, I'll skydive and then I won't be as afraid of climbing. Um, hey, so <laughs> this is what I, this is what I like about you so much. Do it. I mean, work up to it. Right. I feel like one of the scariest things I ever did in my life was I joined the army on my 17th birthday. And, and between my junior and senior year, I did basic training, you know, of high school. I was a scrawny, I mean, I was six foot tall, 120 pounds. I mean, I was like, there was nothing to me. 
if I would have just gone straight there, it wouldn't have worked. But I, I, I spent literally like six months training, trying to gain some weight, trying to get to where I could do it. And, and it was a big step, but it was, it was also an incremental step. And these are, these are things we have to do in life. Sometimes you do take a big leap, right? But you take a big leap after building up to it, you know? So. I might be too chicken to do it. I don't know. I um I was at I was I was down in Bentonville mountain biking and I had a similar feeling when I was watching people doing this jump and and I hadn't done a jump before and I didn't tell anybody that I was going to do it and I just, you know, I didn't want anybody to try to explain to me how to do it. I just was like I'm going to do it. And um I did it and completely wiped out. And, you know, everybody laughed at me and it was, it was kind of funny and I'm fine. If my boss hears this, he's probably going to be very concerned about me taking on all these dangerous sports and our health insurance. I, I want to go skydiving. I just don't know if I'll be able to do it. Yeah. It's not a reckless fetish, you know, fi- find the next thing. I mean, maybe it's not skydiving. Maybe it's a, a hang gliding experience or it's, you know, something like that. They, they also do skydiving, you know, obviously where you're strapped to someone. So, you know, you're just getting the experience, but someone else is doing the work yes. in a sense. Like Exactly. I, I don't think I would do it without being like strapped to somebody. If you want to see something really funny, go on YouTube and watch James Gordon do that with Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. You will feel emboldened that you can do it too. Yeah. Okay. I, I will watch that. I, I've been watching videos of people skydiving and we'll see. I'm thinking about it. It's on my mind. So very cool. It, that would be the craziest thing I think I've ever done. I'm going to let you go because your daughter is probably wondering where you are. So thank you so much, Chuck, for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah. Thanks, Abby. It's uh, great to be back and happy new year. Yeah, happy new year. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned as always. So keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care.